0: I said a moment ago in my pre-introduction to the program, we are tonight going to be talking about and listening to the man whom I consider, and I think my guest Eugene Bergman also considers, the single greatest broadcaster in the history of American radio, Gene Shepherd. Uh, Eugene Bergman is the author of a new book titled Excelsior Euphated, and that needs explanation, which we'll get in a moment. Subtitle: The Art and Enigma. Gene Shepard. Have I overstated the case when I say the single greatest talent in the history of American radio?
1: A lot of people uh, would agree with that, and I certainly do. I think he was a great innovator. I think that the people around today who talk on the radio, whether they know it or not, are descendants of what he initiated.
0: Yet our problem tonight is that for our standard Chicago and Midwestern audience even if they're old enough to have been listening to the radio from 1955 through, say, 1970, which were the major years, or 1955 to 75, which were the years of Shepard's great and dominant presence in American radio, but most of our listeners, even if old enough, would not have heard him if they lived in the the Midwest all those years.
1: No, that's because he was on WOR in New York, which was a 50,000-watt clear channel radio station, but it only reached roughly 28 states along the east. There was, there was some pirating of his shows. There were some attempts at syndication, but not the kind of syndication we know of today.
0: We could try to define what he did that was so special, and we'll talk about that shortly. But I want to
1: plunge right in and
0: introduce Gene Shepard to our audience. And the one we're going to start with, these are clips that you've made available to us, is the one titled Hurling an Invective. This goes back to 1957. you want to explain what we're going to hear?
1: One of the things that uh, Shepard liked to do from time to time, especially in those uh, early days in the 50s, was to, uh, shall we say, startle the uh, uninitiated out there in the dark by having his listeners put a uh, their radios face outward into the night on the uh, windowsill and then all of a sudden come out with some outrageous and startling uh, saying that uh, all the neighbors would say,
0: What was that? What's going on out there? This was a nonstop talker. He talked brilliantly, easily, colloquially, with wonderful metaphors, with surprising turns of idea and turns of phrase, and here he is doing that as he's preparing his audience to hurl a particular invective on this one night.
2: Can't speak W O R. Looking at it realistically, has realized that we must, nay, indeed, all of us, you must have an outlet. You must be able to, from time to time, tell them what it's all about. Give it to them. Don't stand still for nobody. Once again, the science of electronics brings deeper and richer meaning to your lives. Put your radio on the windowsill. In an unprecedented act of goodwill towards its listenership, realization of its deep responsibilities as a purveyor of public good WOR makes this service available to you exclusively this is the only station where you'll find an output for your aggressions you'll find expressions for your repressions put your radio on the windowsill now do it now now the loudspeaker pointed out was the neighborhood. You know that crowd out there. You know that gang. Of course you do. Put it out there. That's it. And I'll give you a cue. And the WOR Public Service Department stands behind you. It's okay. Nobody will be able to trace it to you. We have a special non-traceable voice which we use on this particular invective all right, it will not sound like any living being. Any resemblance to anyone alive at this time is purely coincidental. And does not, of course, include you. Since you are obviously not coincidental, not the result of forces beyond all comprehension. Millions of tiny forces have led you to this point. Coincidences here and there, yes. But they've all fallen into a pattern, and here you are now. So you're off the hook. This voice will carry your sentiments, your repressions, your aggressions, into the darkness out there, that boy with her with her lying weight. Those sharks are we. We're your friends. Yeah, you're friends. they are your friends, all right. We're your friends. Anytime you really need them, you know what's going to happen, of course. All right. Get your radio out on the windowsill and point it outwards, and I'll give you the cue. And when I give you the cue, turn that radio up as long as it'll go. We're going to use a very special kind of invective tonight. This is known as the disquieting with a touch of morbid curiosity type, which is type 23A and a very difficult type to use. You can drop out now if you feel it's a little too strong. It's the... Alright, all ready? Okay. Radio Radio. on windowsill now. Turn it up. Okay, turn it all the way up. Turn it up. Lights out, for heaven's sakes, turn your lights on. Turn the radio on now. Turn it up. Pretend that you're looking at television. Pretend you're asleep. Okay? Myrtle! This is the third time you've come home drunk again. What about the kids? What about the kids, I ask you? How long is this going to go on? How long? Okay. Okay, get that radio back in now, fast. This is the Martin Block program. It's time for a make-believe pool room, friends and neighbors. Time to pick up your cues. Time to step over the table and knock off a game of make-believe snooker. And now on table...
0: Just wonderful. Uh, at the very end, one has to explain. Probably the most popular program in New York at the time was Martin Block's Make Believe Ballroom on a station, I think, called WNEW.
1: I believe it was, yes, and so it played popular music. That's what he's rolling around with at the very end.
0: But what a wonderful invention. What an easy, glib talker. What a, a, a wonderful fantast this guy was. And this is a typical piece, but there are thousands of such pieces that he did.
1: Twenty-one years and more yeah. on on uh, New York radio, some of it overnight, some of it Sunday nights from 9 to 1, and um, almost 20 years of 45-minute programs five nights a week.
0: And one of his many features was hurling invective, was it?
1: Yes, especially in the early days.
0: What were some of the other invectives that he hurled through the, the radio's place to... Uh, at the window, and probably thousands of listeners did place the radios at the window,
1: did they? Yes, and in, in fact, some uh, listeners would hear other uh, people's uh, uh, loudspeakers blaring out into the night. Uh, one of the things he said was, "You don't think for a moment you're fooling anyone, do you?" That was in 1957. Uh, another one is, "How long do you think you can get away with this? The jig is up." <laughs> and on and on and on. <laughs> who was this masked man? This masked man?
0: Well, I'm I'm remembering the Lone Ranger a bit. You remember? Who was that masked man? Uh, uh, since we're talking about old time radio, but who was Gene Shepherd?
1: Who was Gene Shepherd? He was a guy who was absolutely obsessed with talk, and the fascinating thing about him is that. He was very much involved in the jazz scene, and his, uh, his style of talk was improvisation. It was extemporaneous. He never had a script.
0: So he was running a riff on the air, just yes. as, his, as his jazz musicians would do.
1: Yes. In, and in the
0: clubs in uh, the village that he frequented regularly.
1: Yes, and, of course, there was a lot of improvisation going on at that time in the 50s. Yeah. There, uh, there were people like Jack Kerouac who were uh, just uh, writing on uh, rolls of paper, and there was uh, Jackson Pollock who was uh, mm-hmm. doing his drip paintings. There were improvisational groups coming out of Chicago, the Compass uh, Players and uh, several others, who were doing uh, improvisational bits? That was uh, uh, Elaine
0: May and Mike Nichols. and Mike Nichols from the mm-hmm. University of Chicago originally.: Yes,
1: they? and Shelley Berman. Yeah, a few others.:
0: One thing we should point out to our Midwestern listeners is that though they didn't hear Gene Shepard regularly, he was a local boy. He came from these very precincts. Didn't he?
1: Yes, he was born in Chicago. And as a uh, very young fellow, uh, the family moved across the border to Hammond, Indiana, where he basically grew up.
0: And Hammond and memories of life in Hammond figures very prominently in some of his soliloquies.
1: Yes, he uh, told many, many stories about uh, being a kid in uh, Hammond and what it was like uh, to grow up in the Midwest. And he had a Midwest sense of humor. He
0: did indeed. Of course, some of our listeners will know his work not from the programs that ran for some 20 or 22 years on WOR, a leading station in New York City, but rather from some of his later work on television.
1: Yes, he did a number of things, such as uh, a series called Gene Shepard's America, for example. One of the interesting things about that was that it was a time when uh, television equipment... um, was getting very lightweight and portable. Mm-hmm. And because of his uh, interest in improvisation, he said, let's take some of this lightweight equipment and just go out around the country and explore this vast country that has so many fascinating little bits and details and, and, and quirky, uh, quirky bits about it. And uh, he just went uh, all over the place and improvised on television. So that was uh, rather extraordinary to do.
0: And then there's that Christmas piece of his, which is very popular and is still uh, played and replayed around Christmas time.
1: Yes, in fact, it's played 24 hours straight, starting uh, Christmas Eve. It's called A Christmas Story, and many people think of it uh, nostalgically. Oh, the great old days of uh, growing up in in the 30s and 40s. And it does have its nostalgic aspects, but yet it's absolutely hilarious. And each little incident in it um, may have its nostalgic bit and, and aspect, but really you'll, you see that everything that happens ends in disaster. So it's not exactly uh, nostalgia the way we think of it.
0: Well, his monologues were full of personal recollection they were full of autobiographical material but much of it of course was artistically restructured maybe using some elements from his actual history but much of it really pure invention I gather
1: yes in fact um, he would tell it in a way that it seemed to most listeners as though this were purely the truth of his remembering his childhood on the other hand, uh, he later would say, um, no, I made all this stuff up. Yeah. There weren't even people with those names. Well, now we know there were people with those names, but we really don't know in terms of the details what was really true and what he had made up.
0: Now, to get a, to get a further sense of the the style in which he did his broadcasting, the spontaneity, the manic excitement, at the same time, the easy fluency, the absolutely unruffled, Uh, quality of it all. We'll go to another cut, and this, I think, is the beginning of a program, a program which ran probably for over an hour, and he's shifting between, from one subject to another. We hear also, at the very opening, his uh, standard music, Bonfrei. What was that?
1: Well, this was a piece of music that is very... um, exciting full orchestral mm-hmm. music it sounds a lot like uh the the lone rangers william tell overture yes, uh, but he liked it because as he uh, put it it was pure glop he he, <laughs> he thought it was so bad it was fascinating and so he played it for 21 years at the beginning and ending in a, of almost every program
0: so here's the program at the beginning we go some four or five minutes into the program uh you have any idea when this date's from?
1: I'm not sure which one you got there. It's number four on your list. Let me see. Must be in the 1950s still. Uh, I think this would have been uh, the very late 50s, possibly um, or early 60s.
0: Gene Shepard, WOR, New York, in the late 50s. <laughs>
2: I'm back. Holy smokes. You know, this is terrible. I'm still so shaken by this whole thing that I, I,
3: uh...
2: I hope, uh... We've already got a few advance reports. Please do not call them into the station here because uh, for some reason or other, our entire switchboard system has been... uh, It's been just knocked completely out of kilter. So uh, perhaps this, uh you know, could have some kind of electronic ramifications that we don't even know yet about. There's all kinds of scientists and that crawling around here. And uh, we would like to hear, uh, you know, what's what's uh, what actually occurred in your area. Uh, we have one report, which I do not credit, uh, that a young man was listening to the, just before the news when we did the scientific experiment with the Dyack curse. Uh, a young man was listening in, uh, I believe, the town was... Uh, West Orange is there such a town as West Orange New Jersey Well, he was listening in West Orange his father uh, demanded that he turn this jazz off which is the way it was put the old man apparently used his own nomenclature to describe the show he says turn that jazz off and uh, the kid got into an argument with the old man And before they could get to the radio both of them both of them fled the house screaming trailing smoke uh, we don't know uh, what the further ramifications have been. Uh, we'd just like to know. You know, speaking, uh, we, we've got to clear the air. It's just it's just, just too much. You know, you get too close to the primal guts of life. And, uh, you got to clear the air. Would you please help me clear the air there, Mario Please, Please, bring he it up. Oh, oh,
3: oh, oh, my, my gang. Let's go, crowd. That lucky Star. God. Oh, what's
2: oh, he oh, 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 Lucky That saves the day, I'll tell you. I, I I just like to clear the air, you know. Once, well, you know, I'm to say one thing, though. A lot of you, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of skeptics out there. And uh, I suppose if, if you've never had any experience with the supernatural, you, you know, you tend to be skeptical about it. I'm sure, you know, there's no question about that. But, uh... I, I think it goes back to the experiences that you have as, an, uh, you know, as a kid with this kind of thing. You just, uh, the only reason I ever talk about being a kid is not because, you know, it's not, not nostalgia. You a great not a great being a kid and all that jazz. Because any legitimate walking around certified kid, you just stop any walking around certified guaranteed kid. And you ask them what it's like being a kid. And you'll get the straight dope. I mean, he's like, well, kick you in a kneecap. So don't come around with his jazz and you know how great it was. Nah, come on. It's just, it's not great being a kid. It's this is just a fact. It is not. It is not great not being a kid. In fact, let's put it this way: it's not great being anything really. You know, <laughs> you really boil it right down to the. And so, uh, I, you know, no, this is. Uh, the only reason I ever talk about this being a kid, because, you know, this is at the time, this is the moment in your life when you're beginning to absorb all these various experiences and you begin to know what the what the world is about. Now, now some people, luckily, have been shielded in polyethylene from the time that we're born so they can grow up to be big, fat, old 75-year-old guys with beards and still not know which end is up. Oh, literally and figuratively and actually not which end is up. You know, you see them walking down the street once in a while on their hands. They don't know, you know. They never landed. It. it was the feet that you're supposed to walk on. So I'm uh, I'm uh, a little bit nervous about this thing we just went through. Now I'll I'll give you a little. Uh, again, I must say this show is not uh, is not for the not for the squeamish. This program tonight is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for those of you who you know who. Uh, oh yes, we constantly get letters uh, continually saying what. Well, Mr. Shepard, I can't understand why there are so many nice people on your station, and you have to say such, well, such bad things all the time. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I just don't know why that is, madam. I, I, I'm going to try hard, but it never works out. But nevertheless, I'm a kid, you know. And I, the, A little news item came in the other night. A little thing here from Southbridge, Massachusetts. That, has, that, that I'm not even going to read it to you because it's level of scare a few of you, too. Uh, it's cold out, right? It's cold out. Right here. Okay. Now, by cold, I mean any time it gets below freezing. It's cold enough for what I'm... for the curse I'm going to talk about. It's cold out, huh? Well, me and Schwartz and Flick and Pruner... You now walking around, scratching. In every crowd, you take four people, you're going to find three believers and one skeptic. Now it is believed in our day and age, of course, we've got the, some interesting uh, philosophical hookers going with us these days, that uh, anybody who does not believe in a crowd is automatically right just like we like to believe today that anybody who is dissenter because he is a dissenter is right well this is a questionable thesis there's been some great dissenters of the past that could disprove this thesis to hell and gone if you'll excuse the expression. Among them you know that Hitler was a great dissenter from the, from the morality code of his time, you know, oh wow but uh, nevertheless that's neither here nor there I'm a kid, you know, me and Schwartz and Flick and Parner. And uh Bruner was a true believer. I mean, there's always one kid in every crowd or one man in every crowd says, yeah, 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 that's right. Yes, sir, J.B. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Please tell me the joke again, boss. <laughs> it's funny every time you tell it. <laughs> it's 34 times. Very right, good. Well, uh, that's the Bruner type. And then, of course, there was the uh, Schwartz type, who was not really a believer but used to just be very silently waiting to see which way the wind was going to blow and if the wind blew west he went west if the wind blew east he went east but that didn't mean that he believed in east or west he always waited to see which way the crowd was going and then there was me i was the patsy of the crowd there's always one guy in every crowd believe me friends who's the patsy you know what is it a patsy well a patsy is the guy who uh, fills out the coupon and gets shocked. The patsy is the guy who says, gee, that's a great idea. I'll try it first. Well, uh, I was the patsy. Flick was the skeptic. Flick was always about six months ahead of us and Flick was always on top of everything. A skeptic. Well, one day, the wind is blowing out of the cold, frozen north and we're struggling on our way to school. Me and Schwartz and Flick and Pruner, wearing our sheepskin coats, wearing our helmets with the goggles. (laughs) The snow is up to our you-know-what, and we're struggling on our way towards the Warren G. Harding School, when one of those perennial kid myths was brought up. Now, the idea of a believer and a non-believer almost always has to do with mythology. It doesn't do you any good to believe that today is not Tuesday when it's Wednesday. That is not mythology. You're just lousing up on the facts. That's all. A a, a believer has to do with mythology. For example, there is one mythology that feels that man is basically a beautiful creature. Designed, built,
0: and born in beauty. Uh, And where he's going with this, our listeners will not know. Unless they can get their hands on the whole thing. But what a fabulous talker. He really gives. He's really very much like that incredible guy you run into one night at the bar who just holds everybody in fascination as he goes on for hours, free associating from story to characterization to uh, attitude back to another story and so on. This was a run-on talker who could hold your interest forever.
1: Yes, and he was that way on the radio, and he was that way off. I spoke with a number of people who knew him who said that uh, he never stopped talking. You could not get him to stop talking. Even if he ran into somebody he'd never met before, he would corner them and give them a 45-minute monologue. And uh, then when he went home, At the end of the day, after doing his radio program, he was a ham radio operator, and he would talk on ham radio into the night. He was obsessed with talk.
0: He appears in New York in 55, is that right? Yes. He had earlier done a stint in Cincinnati, I guess.
1: And also in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia.
0: He had come to those places after the war. He served in the war.
1: Yes, in the Signal Corps, uh, in the states,
0: he was born in 1921.
1: Yes, you have determined,
0: uh, and he reaches New York at 55 and starts doing this stuff on WOR. Is there an immediate positive response from the New York audience?
1: There was an immediate response from the what he called the night people. Yeah, people who were up late at night for whatever reasons. They uh, they simply felt more comfortable in the dark when things were moving at a slower pace, where you could uh, be more contemplative. Of course, this would include uh, jazz musicians, creators in all fields, writers, painters, and uh, of course some students. And they would be fascinated by this slow-moving but... Uh, really mind-tickling kind of uh, monologue where he drew you in. It was almost as though it was a dialogue between you, uh, between the listener, and you.
0: But he was the only
1: one talking. It was very
0: intimate, wasn't
1: it? It was extremely intimate. You felt that he was your closest friend and he was exploring with you the uh, uh, fascinating life uh, intelligent oh. life in all fields i
0: think you're describing just how you felt about him when you first encountered him on the air
1: yes i first uh, started listening as a uh, college sophomore and as soon as i heard him i uh, well i started recording him because i i indeed felt that he and i were in tune you might mm-hmm. say
0: you met him only once or was it twice
1: well, once I talked for a, a few seconds on the phone with yeah. him, but then once I met him uh, when he asked uh, some of his listeners to gather in a uh, in a bookstore, and we eventually went to an automat where he uh, signed a copy of uh, the book that he uh, perpetrated uh, the hoax about called I, Libertine, uh-huh. a hoax about a book that didn't exist. Fascinating he, story. He got
0: his listeners to go demanding a book in bookstores, which whose title he had invented.
1: Yes. And, and then he,
0: later on he followed through and produced that book, had a lot of people write that book for him.
1: Yes, yeah, he eventually, um, Ian Ballantine of Ballantyne Books got Shepherd together with uh, science fiction writer Theodore Sturgeon, and they churned out the book very, very quickly because it had become somewhat of a... Uh, a news story uh, about this book that nobody could find but yet everyone was asking for and some people claim they read. And it was in the genre
0: of the sort of the uh, bodice ripper gothic novel, was that the
1: idea? (laughs) Exactly, 18th century erotica.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the the story is that uh, Sturgeon uh, turned out the book in roughly three weeks but he fell asleep before he could finish the last chapter. Uh, so, uh, Ballantyne's wife, who was an editor, uh, says that she wrote the last chapter.
0: Now, he was re- responsible for another book, where a different chap- each chapter was written by a different writer.
1: No, I'm not familiar not with f- that.
0: No? I may, I may be thinking of something else. But, be that as it may, a, a fascinating guy, what do we really know about who he was, and how he came to all of this?
1: Well, we uh, know certain basics about his biography. But one of the things that he did, despite the fact that on the radio he gave the impression that he was telling you all about himself, the reality is he was hiding most of his real life from everybody, not only from his listeners, but uh, from his wives and every, everyone else. His wives? How many were there? There were four. There was uh, a very short-term marriage. And then there was uh, a a marriage to Joan Warner, who was the mother of his two children, a Randall Shepard and Adrian Mm Shepard. Then he was married to the actress Lois Nettleton for about six or seven years. And finally, he was married for about 21 years to his uh, producer, who was also his editor, his uh, helper in, in all Phases of his life and work. What was the
0: radio scene like? The radio scene into which he suddenly came?
1: Before. Radio, uh,
0: local radio, New York radio to be sure, in the 1950s.
1: One of the um, most powerful stations was WOR, and they were called the Talk of New York. Mm -hmm. And that's because during the day, They had a number of people on, such as Dorothy Kilgallen and and Dick Colmer, man and wife. They had the Fitzgeralds. They had the McCanns. There were three generations of uh, um, a man uh, named Gambling. Now, these were all what I call chatters. They they chatted. They didn't really talk in Mm -hmm. the same way that Shepard did.
0: They were not yet doing the stuff that talk radio has been doing now for many years, for decades, namely interaction with listeners on, over telephone.
1: No, they, they didn't really do that, although by the uh, 60s, some of that kind of call-in was, was beginning to come on strong. Actually, there was a man here in Chicago who was
0: broadcasting here when I first came to Chicago in 65, Jack Eigen who claimed and who did a, a talk show with some call-ins on WMAQ, I believe, who claimed that he had invented the call-in program.
1: Well, one of the interesting things is that uh, there was a claim that uh, one of the first call-ins was uh, Lois Nettleton, who was then Gene uh, mm-hmm. Shepard's girlfriend, who uh, he, he asked uh, for a listener to call in. She called in. uh, They had a very interesting conversation over the air. And from time to time, she would call in more and more, and she became known as the listener. And there are people who claim that that was indeed just about the first uh, call in.
0: You know, another fascinating radio performer who I don't know whether he was contemporary with Shepard or came a little later or a little earlier, but I think he was on WOR, was Henry Morgan. You remember Henry Morgan?
1: Yes, in fact, he started uh, quite a few years before Shepard. That was before. Yes, he was uh, broadcasting in the 40s.
0: Also a comedic talker.
1: Yes, and he had a very acerbic wit. Yeah, very dry. And uh, I'd say that uh, he gave the impression that he was somebody's really uh, clever uncle or uh, clever cousin who uh-huh. could come out with the wisecrack.
0: I've heard some of the recording of Morgan, and he was really quite a fine performer, Yes, and quite a wit. They're not the same, but they're both quite good doing what they did. We'll hear more Shepard, we'll talk more about radio and its evolution from then to now, uh, and we'll talk more about the life and times of Gene Shepard. Uh, a rather interesting and surprising story, as developed by Eugene Bergman in his new, uh, auto, his new biography, Excelsior you Fathead, The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepard. We haven't yet explained the title, Excelsior you Fathead, but we will directly after we pause for an update on the evening's news uh, from Paula Cooper. And we come back to Eugene B. Bergman, author of Excelsior you Fathead. The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepard just published uh, this fine and fascinating biography by Applause Books. So, it's time to explain. What does that mean, Excelsior, you fathead?
1: Excelsior is a a Latin term that means generally onward and Mm -hmm. upward, let's say, to victory, which is a very positive, idealistic idea. And, of course, you fathead means you fool. So this rather incorporates uh, two aspects of Gene Shepherd's philosophy. That is, sure, have fun, uh, attempt to do everything you can in life, have a great joy in it, um, try to achieve goals, but if you're too idealistic and you don't have a good amount of realism behind your actions, you are a fool. So that that was his uh, most uh, well-known phrase, and as I say, it it, it, uh, captures much of what he felt. Do you
0: know the poem by Longfellow, titled Excelsior?
1: Well, I have it in the book, and uh, I've read it many times.
0: (laughs) The shades of night were falling fast as through an alpine village passed a youth who bore mid-snow and ice a banner with a strange device EXCELSIOR, Excelsior. HIS BROW WAS SAD, HIS EYE BENEATH FLASHED LIKE A FALCON FROM ITS SHEATH, AND LIKE A SILVER CLARION RUNG, THE ACCENTS OF THAT UNKNOWN TONGUE, EXCELSIOR, AND SO ON AND SO ON, FOR MANY LONG stanzas. AND THE LAST ONE, THERE IN THE TWILIGHT COLD AND GRAY, LIFELESS BUT BEAUTIFUL, HE LAY, AND FROM THE SKY, SERENE AND FAR, A VOICE FELL, LIKE A FALLING STAR,
1: Excelsior. excelsior.
0: <laughs> and that's about a
1: young, idealistic man who goes uh, up uh, into uh, a blizzard yeah. up a mountain, a mountain, despite the fact that everyone is saying, oh, no, don't do it, don't yeah. do it. And he says, oh, I must, I must, Excelsior. And, of course, they find him dead in the snow the next day. This was a wonderfully rich mind, the mind of Gene Shepherd, attached to a very loquacious
0: tongue. What was his education, or what were the formative experiences? What filled his his, uh, sensorium and perceptorium?
1: Well, he grew up, um, as we've said, in, in Hammond, Indiana, and by the time he graduated from high school, he had the feeling that he had to get out of Hammond, and he had to eventually get to New York, which at the time was the intellectual and creative capital of not only this country, but probably the world. That's New York in the 50s. So um, after he got out of the army, he went through a number of small radio stations and then larger ones in Cincinnati and Philadelphia, apparently always with the idea that he had to somehow get to New York.
0: Does one understand that he had no formal education beyond high school?
1: He claimed sometimes that he had a college degree. That has not been substantiated. Uh Apparently, he took some courses, and that was about it. He must have read very widely. He read very widely. He could talk about just about about any subject you named. And, of course, he would bring up uh, anything Mm -hmm. from uh, haiku to the great philosophers and the great novelists and so on.
0: You know, for older folks remembering American radio, there was a figure in Chicago, very different in mode and Mm -hmm. in mood, but on the air, maybe at roughly the same time. He went on to national prominence, but he also was a great, fascinating spieler. He could talk and talk and talk, in the late, in the midnight hours. Uh, And that is, uh, what was his... I was about to say what was his name, but it comes to me even as I said that. That was Dave Garraway.
1: I have seen some of Dave Garraway on on television, but I'm not familiar enough with well, him. Well, on
0: television, he did a television show, I gather, from Chicago, which was local. But he was on WMAQ radio for many years. Towards midnight, he would play some music, but he would talk in long, long stretches, free associating and displaying considerable knowledge about things and somehow conveying interesting attitudes and uh, a certain amount of world weariness, a certain amount of cynicism, at the same time, uh, a considerable comedic uh, structure to his thought. Uh, When he finally went to New York, he became the host of the program that is still seen on NBC television in the morning, whatever they call it. Uh, the Today Show. The Today Show, it? and there he had a very different function, of course, and wasn't spieling away the way he did on the air. But I would say that on air, he was a Midwestern equivalent, though not
1: as long lasting
0: on radio, as uh, but a Midwestern equivalent of Gene
1: Shepherd. It certainly does seem that way. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: I wonder when we go to the phones tonight, as we will, whether any of our listeners, particularly some of the older folks in their 60s and beyond. Uh, remember uh, Garraway on the air and certainly uh, we'd be delighted if there are any listeners who remember Gene Shepard on the air. Perhaps they listened to them when they were younger people in the East before they came Midwest. Uh, Though he is known as we said earlier to the country generally for some of those later films that he did mostly for PBS television I think.
1: Yes uh, he did a number of long form films that were Really, based on his short stories, they would combine three or four or five into an hour and a half uh, PBS. What are
0: some of the titles of those?
1: Um, Phantom of the Open Hearth was one. Uh-huh. Uh, the Great American Fourth of July was another one. Star Crossed uh, Romance of Josephine Koznowski was another one. <laughs> he had oh, he had uh-huh. these marvelous titles yeah. for his short stories.
0: What happened to Josephine Kosnowski
1: She uh, was uh, a voluptuous uh, young Polish girl who moved in uh, next door to uh, Ralph Parker, who was the Gene Shepard persona. Uh-huh. And, uh, of course, he was fascinated by her. But uh, what he found out was that uh, her family was looking to an eventual marriage, and all he was looking for was uh, a nice hug and a kiss from uh, Josephine Koznowski And uh, he he found that it was a little bit too early in life to get involved in something so serious, and he just runs away. He escaped. Uh huh. Do we know what happened to Josephine beyond that? No, no. That that was not of interest to Shepard. He was only interested in what happened to his own persona. Let's
0: hear another uh, monologue, as it were. They're all monologues, of course. Uh, And here's one that I hadn't heard before. I listened to it earlier today on the CD that you've worked up for this material. Uh, This is the one about the Moni sign. Do we need to explain this, or should we just plunge well, into Well,
1: I, I think we should. There's a there's a building, a very tall building in New York. It's Mutual of New York. So the sign is M O N Y. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And here's Shepard,
0: uh, responding to it.
2: But see, I'm walking along. Uh, I'm I'm just paying attention only to my own world. I'm walking along on Sixteenth Street the other day, and just. Reading signs. Uh, There are those of us who read signs, and then there are those who apparently never see this world around us. One of the most significant signs here in New York is a sign that flashes M-O-N-Y. Off and on, M-O-N-Y. Do you know that I was in New York for over three months before I realized that that wasn't a misspelling? (laughs) It's true. I, I, I had no idea what this meant. And I just thought, well, it's New York, you know? And I, I used to walk up and down Broadway at 2 o'clock in the morning and that thing would go, M-O-N-Y. I said, why didn't somebody get that thing fixed? This is beginning to bug me. M-O-N-Y. M-O-N-Y. It would just flash. And then it would go, M-O-N-Y. 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 And underneath it, it would say three, one, four, three, one, five, M-O-N-Y, and then there would be a little yellow pole or something, and there would be a green star at the top, M-O-N-Y, and I'm walking along Broadway trying to figure why aren't they getting that thing fixed? Everybody is seeing it all over town, this misspelling. This awful. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so, so either you look at it or you don't. You know, I find that most people don't, and those who don't always figure that those who do are a little bit out of their minds. What's this young man speaking about? Well, I'm walking along 16th Street the other day. Madam, how do you feel this one? I'm walking along 16th Street on the west side, and I, and I notice in through one of the doorways, you know, that there's the little anti room or the lobby into one of these office buildings where there's the automatic elevator that goes up and down, and there's this big directory hanging in there with all the little white letters, and it tells where everything is, and then there's usually two or three big signs that say barber shop to the right or coffee shop to the left, or there's a uh, an arrow that points and says telephones that way. Has it ever occurred to you that one of the major industries in New York is telephoning? Honestly, it really is. One of the major industries here in New York City is just plain telephoning. I don't mean getting anything done about it. I mean just telephoning. (laughs) There's always a line of people standing in front of a telephone booth telephoning. If you could somehow get get, get a corner on that market, if you could collect one cent on every one of these... these, (laughs) Don't worry, somebody is. (laughs) Excuse me, madam. I I can't help it, you know. (laughs) Don't feel sorry for the phone company. (laughs) That little itsy-bitsy pink phones now that light up in the dark. (laughs) <laughs> I can see Wallace Berry. <laughs> He's rushing. He rushes into the. He rushes into this room to make a phone call. Some disaster has happened, and he grabs a hold of this little itsy bitsy, uh, this little John Quill Yellow phone, the one that lights up in the dark. He's trying to dial it, and his finger can't fit into the. <laughs> come on, man, man, now oh, come on, man. Oh, what's the matter with this phone? And his fingers caught in the dial. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am. So I'm walking along sixteenth Street and I look in there, there's a big sign that says coffee shop, and there's another big sign that says barber shop that way. And then above it there's a sign that says the Margaret Sanger Bureau. And there's a great big blue and white sign, and all it says is fertility, one flight up. Well, I saw that one and I walked on a little ways, and then this is beginning to soak down into my consciousness. Ha ha ha. You're going to understand the nature of our fears. Uh, who would like to shoot an arrow into the air with me? I mean, you know, not worry much about where it lands. You know, just up it goes. <laughs> M O N Y. M O N Y. M O N Y. 316. Well, I suspect, though, however, that these are the little secrets. Speaking of secrets, we have with us today the Village Voice.
0: The Village Voice, of course, was a newspaper. It still is a newspaper. He uh, started doing a column for them, I think, didn't he?
1: He was one of the earliest people who wrote for the Village Voice. And he, he eventually was writing weekly columns, and in fact, he... Help promote the voice when it was in serious yeah. uh, financial straits, and uh, he managed to help it survive.
0: You know, listening to that last clip, uh, the thoughts that were running through my mind were, uh, could anyone in radio today do that sort of thing, a straight soliloquy or a monologue? It should be made clear he didn't write this stuff. This was really free associative and spontaneous, uh, as it flowed from his mind, and as it uh, was conveyed in just wonderfully articulate, colorful speech, which held people listening for an hour, for two hours, for three hours. One of his programs, The Nighttime, one ran for some three or four hours, did it not?
1: When he began these uh, programs in 1956, he was broadcasting every day, a uh, day of, uh, during the week from 1 in the morning till 5.30.
0: And it was a straight stream of consciousness
1: yes. soliloquy of this sort. Yes. Relieved by no phone calls. No. But maybe later his wife-to-be started calling a little bit. Uh, occasionally, but yeah. you could not say that he did a telephone call-in show.
0: Now, I've been doing radio for over 30 years, which is an embarrassing confession virtually, and I still enjoy doing it. From the beginning... I've been talking with guests rather than doing what he does. And then we've been going to phones, as we will do in a while on this very program tonight. And I might as well, at this point, invite telephone callers. The number, of course, is 591-7200. If you want to talk about radio as it was then and about this particular genius, Gene Shepard, or other geniuses you want to remember and uh, and uh, brag about, give us a call, 591 591- seventy two hundred but uh, I wouldn't say that having a guest here like you right now is a crutch, or having phone callers is a crutch, but I know that I could not get on the air for an hour and talk a lo- and talk and just talk and talk and talk and talk at least I'd need phone input on the occasional rare nights when I go without a guest. I will usually opine a bit on some public issue or read something from one or another opinion column and then invite callers. To respond to it. Uh, I don't know anybody in American radio these days who does or tries to do, aspires to do, what Shepard did apparently so effortlessly.
1: I really doubt that anyone else could do this. I think he was unique. Uh, as yeah. I said, he, uh, he did this 24 hours a day. <laughs> it wasn't just on the radio. You couldn't uh, stop him from talking. He was obsessed with the sound of his own voice. Sort of narcissistic, uh, egotistic, mm-hmm. true, but uh, a genius in being able to, to pull this off.
0: I knew a guy once, all of Chicago knew him, who had this capacity when he was in the mood. Uh, he didn't do it on the air. He did it with friends. He often did it when there was a little bit of um, uh, of alcohol in him, just enough to kind of free him from, if not his ambitions, at least his otherwise light, surly uh, attitude towards the world. The man I'm talking about is very well known. He died a few years ago, far too young. Mike Royko, who was a great columnist, but at parties or at events with friends, after one or two libations, he would begin telling stories and expressing his views. I walked into one particular thing on a late afternoon many years ago, And Mike was there, and when I walked in, he was talking, and everyone was spellbound by the narrative that unfolded, by the the social commentary, by the wonderful um, indirect expression of contempt, as usual, for politicians and for other corrupt people, and it just went forward and flowed so easily, and after an hour and a half, I realized I was still sitting there listening to Mike Royko. We all were. Now, that's the equivalent experience. We occasionally run into people who can do that privately, but they don't do it on the air routinely.
1: Right. They. Uh, I don't know of anyone else who ever did anything whatsoever uh, like that. How do you explain his genius? Explain it? I'm yeah. not. Well, maybe that's just one more enigma. I don't know no. that you. I don't know that you can explain such a thing other than uh, passion, ego. And uh, an extraordinary unique ability. I, I don't know how else yeah. to put it. Well, you do subtitle your book, The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepard. Yes. Uh, he gave uh, Part of the reason for that is that he gave this sense that he was uh, having such an intimate conversation with you and telling you the truth about himself. But as uh, we found out, much of what he told was total fiction in uh, terms of his storytelling, and in fact, he kept a, most of his private life to himself, and this is a very strange contradiction. I note that we are loaded with phone calls,
0: and all of the people who are calling did listen to Shep and have a strong memories and, and a great persisting enthusiasm for him, I gather. We'll pause for some overdue commercials, and then we'll let some of those... Shep fans uh, into this conversation between two old Shep fans. We return right after these words. I should make utterly clear something I have not stressed tonight so far, namely that the fine book by Eugene B. Bergman, Excelsior You Fathead, The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepard, is a very rich uh, compendium, not merely of uh, what we know about Gene Shepard, who remains a touch mysterious in terms of the details of his life but also uh, of his achievements, and there's a vast amount of his material which is reproduced in written form. It's not quite the same as hearing the voice, but having heard some of the voice tonight, you can almost imagine uh, the performances. Um, What is available? And that book, by the way, Excelsior, You Fathead, published by Applause Books. What's available in recording?
1: There are literally hundreds and hundreds of his shows available. Commercially? Commercially? Yes, uh, there are people who sell them. You can find them on eBay. Uh-huh. Uh, you, uh, there is somebody who actually gives away CDs of Gene Shepard material. And um, most of these people and most of these sources are available on the main Gene Shepard website, which is uh, flicklives.com. If you go to that site, you find a tremendous amount of material about Gene Shepard in uh, all aspects of his life and work, and also these various uh, sources of uh, his programs.
0: Flicklives.com. Yes. We go to the phones now, Five nine one seven two double zero. You are on the air. Good evening.
1: Hi, I'm Milt Barry
4: Kaufman. How are, How are you? you, sir? I am fine.
0: Barry Kaufman of WBBM.
4: That's right. Uh, Dr. Barry
0: Dr. Barry Kaufman. Dr.
4: Barry Kaufman, right. Uh, 30 years on the radio and television, and a lot of that I owe to Gene Shepard. How so? Um, I was 14 years old in Teaneck, New Jersey, when he uh, started in 55. Huh. And I still don't sleep at night.
1: <laughs> I,
4: I stay up most of the night. Yeah. Uh, a, a few friends and I just had our had our, our psyches molded by, by Shepard.
0: What was the nature of his influence upon you?
4: Um, the love of painting pictures with words. Uh-huh. Um, you know, just staring at his ceiling with a little bit of light coming through a window and hearing him use language. I think the three people that have affected me most are Shakespeare, Mark Twain, and Gene Shepard, mm-hmm. uh, just in the, in the use of language. Uh, and also, for a 14-year-old, he was incredibly liberating, um, it, it was this, it was this kind of social anti-social um, uh, thread that he uh, that he wove. Uh, and I had a personal experience with Shepard, uh, Eugene. First of all, thank you for the book. Uh, and I knew it was coming because I got a an email from a friend back in Princeton, who was the university professor in uh, urban policy at uh, Rutgers, uh, roommate of mine from college. And he said I've been listening to a radio interview with Eugene Bergman. Written a book on Shep called Excelsior, you fathead. Sounds good. I'm ordering it. So you know that you've sold at least one in Princeton there, and another one here in uh, in Wilmette. But I met Shepard. Um, he had uh, a sponsor, Jervien perfume, and um, I I guess I had a, a first girlfriend then. And Shepard said that anybody who comes to to uh, one of the department stores, either Lord and Taylor or Sachs in New York and spots him and goes up and says, not Excelsior, you fathead, but Excelsior baby, because he used to say Excelsior baby a lot. Um, um, He'll give you a flacon, and I love the way he pronounced that, a flacon of, <laughs> of, 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 of Um And so I had been working for my dad down in the tip of New York. I think I was 16 years old. It was on a, a summer. And I, I said, I'm leaving, and I took the subway up, And I go in, and I go to the perfume department, and that 16-year-old feels pretty self-conscious. And I look around to see if there's anybody who looks like Shepard, because I had no idea what he looked like. I mean, that was the other thing that was magical, is that radio gave you this voice, but you had to fill in the face and the body. But I saw this presence that had to be Shepard, because he was kind of glowing, and in a very sheepish way. And and I remember just feeling so, so uh, embarrassed uh, but yet, I wasn't going to let this magical opportunity pass. And, and and I walked up, and I looked up, and he seemed like about 100 feet tall. And I said, hey, excuse me, are you Mr. Shepard? And he said, and of course, in his typical, yeah, kid. And I said, excelsior, baby.
3: <laughs> and he
4: said, okay, kid. And he reached in his pocket and pulled <laughs> out <down> this little flacon cone of And life has never been the same. So thank you for the clips. Uh, my 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 university friend sent me the uh, the flick lives uh, uh, website, and and just tonight reconnecting. I'm 63 now, reconnecting with that voice and those images. Um, it's like a constant in 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 a lot of our lives, and and thanks, Milt, for
0: my pleasure. Great to hear from you, Barry, and we've got one more fine clip coming before we're done tonight. Well,
4: I I will not turn it off, and Eugene, uh-huh. I will buy your book. <laughs> thank thank you for for doing it.
0: Thank you. Great and to hear from. Nice him, you. Nice speaking to you, Milt. Good night. Take care. Bye. Uh, quickly to another. Hello, you're on the air.
4: Yes, uh, I met.
5: <coughs> well, I met. I was introduced to Gene Shepherd as a kid in Ohio. His short stories actually appeared in Playboy in the mid-50s, late-50s. And uh, I, ju- I just loved him, and then had the uh, the opportunity to move to New York and sell print advertising in New Jersey. So I drove around a lot, and I used to listen to him every night. There were times I would sit out <laughs> in front of my, mm-hmm. in my home in Princeton, New Jersey, just waiting for the show to end, which pleased my wife no end. But the thing I want to mention at WOR, which was just a marvelous radio station, drive time from three to six was Bob and Ray, Bob Elliott and Ray Goulding. Yeah, and uh, Arlene Francis had a show, and there was a guy by the name of William B. Williams, who was a sort of an empresario, a great friend of Frank Sinatra. And uh, WR's format just uh, stayed with me all day because obviously I was driving in, from uh, New York to to Baltimore, and. Uh, I just couldn't get enough of it. His show was just marvelous. And the uh, the, uh, the radio station itself was one of the absolute best radio stations in the country at the time. Uh,
0: I wa- do they still do talk radio basically on W.O.R. Yeah, I think
5: yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they do, the they, they, do they do a lot of sports. Not do the extent that they used to do. But there's, yeah. they do some more sport than they, than they ever did then.
0: But there's never been somebody to match or replace Shepard.
5: Oh no, oh no. Bob and Ray weren't bad.
0: Oh, well, they were superb. <laughs> they, they, they were, were super. great.
5: They uh, were. Uh, I, and again, I would drive into the city and and driving home. If I got home at five o'clock or five thirty, I would drive around until they were over, and then go home.
0: <laughs> well, what you say about uh, sitting in the car rather than turning off a Shepard? Uh, I was a young assistant professor up in New Haven at Yale, mm-hmm. and uh, in those days and. I had the very same experience. I loved listening to him, and sometimes he would pin me to the car long after I finished my appointed chores.
5: My wife was not pleased.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for the call. You're welcome. Delighted to hear from you. Here's an interesting email that uh, came in spontaneously because I have an invited email tonight, I think. Uh, this fellow says uh, The clips you have aired have been upbeat with a heavy dose of sang froid and laconic wit. Question. Did Gene Shepherd have any dark nights of the soul on the air, especially given the era during which he broadcast, an era of conflicts, assassinations, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so on, not to mention personal setbacks such as divorce? What might his show have been like on those dark nights?
1: One of uh, the kinds of stories he told, which, of course, was also funny in its own way, was the story of two cavemen called Og and Charlie. And uh, the one that I especially remember is one where at some point uh, one of them goes and and, and gathers up some clams and they just sort of squat there by the Uh side of the lake and uh, the other one slowly picks up a rock because he wants the clams and crashes it down on the head of the other one and kills him outright. And as Shepard said, modern man had begun. Uh, What a sad uh, negative tone that one had. But yet he managed to tell it in an amusing and fascinating way. But there was that dark side of him also. He was amused by uh,
0: the evil that lurks in the heart of man
1: yes he um he believed that definitely that was a part he he would say that that it's the fist fights mm-hmm. that break out in all of us and uh he he felt that you'd never ever get rid of that because it was part of what human oh. beings are and that's that's one of the very negative things that he had to say and yet the overall effect of his uh Broadcast was one of great joy in life. But there was this other side, too, an undercurrent. Well, if you
0: look at human nature and the human history whole, you've got two choices, either cry or laugh rather than cry. cry.
1: And definitely he would laugh. And uh, one of uh, the things that he said was that, uh, you know, one way of uh, telling some of the sadness and the negative parts of of human uh, history is to do it in a funny way. And people think you're joking. Mm. And he said, I'm not joking. This sad part and this negative part is also true. I'm saying it in a funny way, but I'm not joking. We uh,
0: are due for another quick stop for some commercials, then right back to the phones on 5917200. And we return to Eugene B. Bergman, from whose new book we have been drawing, uh, Excelsior Euphatid, The Art and Enigma of Gene Shepard. Applause books, the publishers, available wherever they sell real books. And wonderful reading, with great large swatches of monologue material directly taken from the tapes of Shepard's broadcasts. Five nine one seven two double zero is our number. You are the next caller. Good evening.
3: Hello. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say what an incredible moment it was tonight when I turned on my radio and I hear this voice saying, put your radio in the window uh-huh. and hurling invectives. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, 40 years ago <laughs> in New Jersey, I used to listen to Gene Shepherd. It sounds just like him. Uh-huh. And it was, it, it is so wonderful. It's like re-meeting an old friend. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh i used to listen to him when i was about 15. it also was a time when i was becoming aware of politics um and things were changing but he was an incredible storyteller um and commentator i think the way he worked with um his timing and silences there were moments he would say something and then it would get quiet for just a moment and and Even that would be funny sometimes, or that would be thought-provoking. So I just wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you for the, um, the web address and for letting us know that we can get his recordings and certainly your book which is going to be, uh, I'm going to get it as soon as I can. The other thing I wanted to say, and I don't know if, uh, if the question was rhetorical or not, but you were talking about who else could do such a thing, yeah. tell these stories, and um, if this person goes in the right direction, the, I, I, Steve Dahl, I think, is a very good storyteller. And uh, could he sit for 45 minutes like uh, Gene Shepard used to? I don't know. but uh, well, certainly remember,
0: Shepard did it alone. He had, didn't have any sidekicks right. to talk with him.
3: Exactly, exactly. And, and his stories, whether he was talking about what I thought were true stories about his family and the old man passing gas in the Buick, or his Army stories, I mean, they were just absolutely fantastic. And it's a shame, actually, that there aren't any radio reruns because if if they were, I would listen to them all the time.
0: Well, I wonder if there aren't. Thank you, ma'am, for the call. Can uh, does anyone rerun Shepard? We had a just now an email from somebody who tells me that on WFmt's Midnight special program, when they do I gather a yearly program about the White Sox, they play a Gene Shepherd routine about the White Sox.
1: Well, not only that, but uh, in in New York, uh, there's a program uh, every week. Uh, on WBAI-FM and that's streamed on their uh, website Uh and the FlickLives site uh, archives the last uh, roughly dozen of those and uh, there has been at least one internet source that plays uh, Shepard 24 hours a day Really, I do list them in the back of the book I haven't checked it out recently but the last time I did uh, it was still there
0: Uh, I want to play another uh, soliloquy, another major piece, which we get, of course, from Gene Bergman. I listened to this earlier tonight, and I was delighted by it. And uh, this is the one in which he reveals ultimately what he wants. And uh, I'll let the audience discover that as we listen to this clip.
2: (laughs) Yeah, what you do is you knit one first, and then you purl two. And after that, uh, you just sit down and wait for developments. It's like opening up a box of, uh, of one of these instant pudding mixes and so on. You always have the hope. It's, it's a very fugitive, sneaking hope. Almost, a, well, it's a hope that you, you beat down with mental sticks and stones. A fugitive, sneaking hope than when you mix the water with it and mix the, mix the milk with it, that instead of putting, something else will suddenly leap out of the ball. A great hissing and bubbling. And, you know, oh, oh, boy, that immense feeling of power. That's what we want, power, all of us. Let's admit it, we want power. I admitted it last week. Somebody called up and said, what do you want, Shepard? And I suddenly sat here for a moment and thought about it. What do I want? Once in a while, one has to face oneself clearly and distinctly. What do I want? And then I came to the answer that struck me like a thunderclap, a great cloud out of the West that rolled and hissed and steamed. I want everything. Everything. That's what I want. All the money, everything. I want everything. Everything. I want everything. All the women, everything. I want every radio show. I don't want anybody else to have any shows. I want every television show, me, starring me. I want to do every show on Broadway. Well, and then I, I, I admitted it. And this guy called up again and says, oh, quit clowning around, Shepard. What do you really want? And he couldn't face the fact that I had told him what I really wanted. You see, we keep ducking and bobbing behind this silly, shilly, shally facade of wishful dreams. OK, you got it there. It's right out in front of you now. And all its hairy virility right out there. And you can't you can't hide from it, ever really did i ever tell you about this guy i knew who had a model a a model a ford and he had it perfectly restored it was a beautiful model a ford well it was it, was, it had a bad muffler but it was a model a ford and he had imitation snakeskin upholstery put in it. it was terrible and he thought it was good and I remember he drove this pretty little Model A Ford around. He said to me, isn't this great? Look at this imitation snakeskin upholstery. And all I could think up to say was your muffler's bad. See, I couldn't face it either. Not the grim, shrill reality of life. Grim. Well, it's not so grim. Remember to tell you about the time Charlie Grimm got mad and threw his banjo out of the third base dugout in Wrigley Field? and they went all the way out in the right center field. This banjo, it was a tenor banjo, I remember. And then Grimm saw this tenor banjo out in right center field, and he suddenly got panicky and realized that it was the only tenor banjo on the north side of Chicago. And it was his chief means of livelihood. And so he called time. And uh, the umpire was about ready to throw him out of the park, you see, for what what he had done. And Charlie went up to him, said it slipped. I was just practicing a few swings in the dugout and it slipped. Well, actually, he was having a tantrum. but He wouldn't face up to it. He was having what we call in the business a banjo tantrum, or it's
0: known by the the psychological... That seems to have ended rather surprisingly.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's interesting that that particular... Clip was a very early one that I made in yeah. the fifties uh, before I, I had a, a direct connection from uh, for my uh, recording. So you got the
0: microphone right up against the radio.
1: Yes, and one I could hear not only an airplane going mm-hmm. overhead that Sunday night, but a little bit of the television being played two rooms away where my parents were watching uh-huh. it. So that they they were the older generation watching television, and I was the kid uh, back in the kitchen listening to Gene Shepherd.
0: We'll go right back to the phones, uh, right after we take care of these messages, and we go back to the phones. You are on the air. Good evening.
6: Good evening, Professor. Uh, just uh, let me strip your memories gears a moment. Uh, Many years ago on WGN, your program was followed by a, a show hosted by Eddie Schwartz,
0: Chicago Eddie Schwartz. You got it, absolutely.
6: Uh, and uh, I remember at least three or four occasions when Gene was on the uh, on with Eddie.
0: I did not know that. How fascinating!
6: Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Well, both of them were ham radio operators. Yeah, and uh, that connection, and uh, as am I, and the. Uh, Local ham radio operators uh, generally on those nights used to call in to uh, needle both of the both of them. Was though. it
0: but was this were, when Shepard was living down in Florida? Yes. Uh-huh. But, uh huh.
6: But what would ha- uh, but uh, Shepard would uh, recall many of his uh, memories uh, a little more factually from his uh, Chicago. Yeah, Southside Steel Mills, Indiana days.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Ed has uh, tapes of those. If so, they should be added, certainly, to the archival collection. Yeah,
6: uh, like I say, it was on WGN. I don't know if your archives still have them or not.
0: Well, I, I, we could look into that. Our archive is like a great big Fibber McGee closet. <laughs> but uh, that's fascinating, and I might follow through on that further. Thank you, sir, for the call.
6: Yes, yeah, so and one, one other thing. Uh, sure. I... Uh, uh every year there's a large ham radio convention in Dayton, Ohio and for a number of years at the banquet uh Shepard would be the featured speaker he would more uh-huh. or less alternate years between uh, himself and then Roy Neal the uh NBC News uh space uh correspondent reporter would do alternate years with him
1: apparently there were 3 of those Uh, in which uh, Shepard talked at the Hamvention. Uh, Two of them uh, there are uh, tapes of, and uh, they're fairly regularly available. The man couldn't get get enough of radio, obviously. Right, and of course he loved ham radio so much that he Uh wanted to do whatever he could to uh, help ham operators. Uh He even uh, made a little tape on uh, uh, an introduction to Morse code, And he also did a little video on satellite um, communication of ham radio operators. So he was very into it.
0: He's got a very funny and classic routine on learning Morse code while in the Signal Corps.
1: Yes, uh, a group of them who were in the Signal Corps, uh, for some strange uh, administrative uh, error, were put in a uh, a primitive uh, class in learning Morse code. So they were all experts, of course. So uh, what they did was make believe that no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't even get to first base with Morse code. And, of course, it drove the instructor crazy. Until
0: Major Abramowitz came in and saw through them yes. and told them,
1: you get that code or <laughs> what was it, or you're going to go to
0: a radar unit. Ah, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Uh, let's work at one or two more quick calls. Back... To the listeners, good evening. You're on the air. Hi. I was a college student in 1953, and I'd listened late into the night uh, to KYW in Philadelphia. I believe that was the station, and I was intrigued with uh, Gene Shepherd. His colorful words, his phrases, his imagination—you never knew what was coming up next. But there's one thing I'd like to ask. He, at that time, he played quite a bit of classical music, and he had some very unusual. Songs on there, uh, would your guest have any comments on the music that he played
1: he uh, Shepherd was uh, quite an aficionado of classical music and also of jazz and in the early days he he did play more extensive pieces of classical music and he played much more adventuresome. Uh, jazz. He would play some of the more avant-garde jazz pieces, but this this was in his early days. And uh, later on, he tended to play more uh, Dixieland and uh, funky, uh, uh, amusing, more easy to uh, appreciate stuff. But in the early days, he played a lot more classical and far-out jazz.
0: Yeah, it, his music was wonderful on there. Do you recall? He had a theme at that time that was very unusual.
6: Would you know what that is?
1: Well, the theme that uh, played at the beginning and end of virtually uh, every program on WOR for 21 years was called Bon Fry, which means something to the effect of uh, free course. And it was written by, as Shepard said, one of the lesser Strausses, Edward Strauss and he played it because he felt it was such an intensely bad piece of music that, as he said, it set the tone for his program.
6: Thank you very much for
0: your comments.
1: We thank you, sir, for the call. Hi. Um, what can you,
0: your book does deal with uh, the, uh, the declining years or the
1: years beyond the active career? Uh,
0: they weren't very fulfilling years, were they?
1: No, because despite the fact that he had many successes, that he was recognized as a great radio person, yeah. that he'd made films and and written books that were very popular, and he had so many fans, he still felt that he should have gone further uh, in the um, public imagination. And the fact that he didn't, he felt, was just not right. It was a failure somewhere along the line, whether it was of uh, the American public, of, uh, I'm sure he realized he tried as hard as he could, but somehow it just didn't work out to his total satisfaction. He was born in 1921. He died in 1999 99. at the age of 78. Yes. Yeah. Two children surviving. Yes, even though he, uh, at Times would actually deny their existence, why would he do that? Uh, one interpretation is that he seemed to always want uh, to seem young and free uh-huh. and unencumbered by such mundane things as family that's uh, That's one interpretation uh-huh. i've heard there's some mystery clings to this guy still Definitely. even even
0: despite your uh, heavy research. yes. But that, uh, the product of that fine research, Excelsior, your fathead, the Arts and enigma of Gene Shepard, is the book by Eugene Bergman. It's readily available, published by Applause Books. We'll end with, uh, with Shepard the musician. He would do this often. He would go along with his kazoo, accompanying other recorded music, and that's what we'll go out with this very night. Look oh, it out. Oh,
6: oh, by the way, I say by the way. By the way. Oh, oh, way. Oh,
2: Too, yes, sir, that's, that's my baby. No, no son, sir, I don't mean baby. baby yes, sir, that's, that's my baby now. <laughs> Let's sing it out, King.